of God brings heaven to earth. It leaves culture upturned and the kingdom upright. The kingdom is pure and holy. It is blessed and set apart. It is righteous beyond all understanding. It is generous beyond earning. Our God's kingdom is good news. His kingdom is saving grace. It rattles our reality and shakes us awake. And it pours out of us as salt and as light. It brings perspective that changes the way we think. It brings vision that changes the way we see. It brings growth that changes who we are. It brings surrender that changes how we live. The kingdom is kindness that doesn't feel fake. And the kingdom is patience that doesn't make sense. It is forgiveness when it doesn't seem possible. It is for the poor in spirit, the lowly, and the persecuted. The kingdom is his, his kingdom is ours, and the kingdom of God is here. Hey, Cornwall Church, so glad that you're with us again this weekend. Don't you love that intro video? I mean, it's like a sermon in itself, like in a minute and 12 seconds. There's so much uh, truth in that. Just absolutely love that. Hey, we're in our third week of the series uh, Kingdom Culture, and uh, the reason that Pastor Kip loves this series is because the initials of Kingdom Culture are KC, like his beloved Kansas City. The reason Jesus loves this series is because we're talking about the best sermon ever. We're looking at the Sermon on the Mount uh, found in Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. I hope that you've been reading that, uh, digging into it, uh, discussing it, asking questions, learning from it, because there is so much in the Sermon on the Mount, this best sermon ever, that we're not even going to come close uh, to covering it all or even scratching the surface. So we're going to continue on. We're going to jump right in today. Um, pick up where we left off. Uh, before we get there, I want you to just take a moment uh, with me and use your imagination. I, I want you to imagine uh, a group of people, a, a group of people that are governed by a, a government, and this constituent, uh, constituency of these people and this government are, are like a, a reigning world power, uh, seen by many as the greatest gathering or group on the planet. And this government and these people are led by a man who's extremely narcissistic. And what's amazing is that some people absolutely love him and some people absolutely hate him. So much that some would say he's even a gift from God and others would probably go so far as to say he is the devil incarnate. And it's not just the constituency that's divided. The governors and the senators of this leader, they're divided, and some of them are for him, and some of them are against them, and some of them have been working on ways to, to oust him from his power. And it's not just the governors and senators with this leader. The governors and the senators don't agree with each other. They don't like each other, and there's corruption, and there's division in, in, in all of the, the governing of this, this group of people and this, this government. In addition to that, with the people that are under this reign, there's great unrest. And with this unrest, when there are like demonstrations or protests, very often they're met with violence and even killing. In this group of, of people under this, this government, there's, there's a great disparity between the rich and the poor, and there's great taxation, which is, causes great frustration for the people. And in this gathering, 
there's not equal education for everybody. Not all children are educated the same. And there's not equal health care for everybody. It's not accessible to everybody. And in, in addition to that, some of the most vulnerable groups within this group of people are often oppressed or overlooked or even taken advantage of. And religious groups, and one religious group in particular, faces amazing, like almost like persecution, and the value of human life is like throwing out the window to where human life is expendable. Hard to imagine that there would ever be a government and a people like that. Now some of you might be saying, well that sounds vaguely familiar, and the reason it might sound vaguely familiar is because what I just had you imagine with me is a partial picture of the Roman Empire in the time of Jesus. What Jesus faced, the, 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 the political climate, the environment, the arena that he faced was very much like what I just expressed and even worse. And it was in that context that he makes this statement that has kind of been the foundation of our whole series when he says this, the time has come, the kingdom of God is near, repent and believe the good news. Now we looked at this extensively a couple of weeks ago, but this, as what strikes me is in the arena of this country, of, of this political uh, mess that they were living in, Jesus comes and he says, hey, there is good news. I mean, this is positive. There's a, there's a new administration coming in. There's a new ruler. There's the new kingdom that is coming in the midst of this world, this dark world that we live in. What else is quite, quite amazing to me is when he talks about this good news, about this kingdom, it has absolutely nothing to do with the man who is ruling. It has nothing to do with the senators or, or the governors. It has nothing to do with an election. It has to do with what he would usher in, this kingdom of God. And 2,000 years ago, he says, I am bringing this kingdom. It's starting now. And over the last 2,000 years, kingdoms have come and gone, empires have come and gone, world leaders have come and gone, world powers have come and gone, countries have come and gone, ideologies have come and gone, uh, dynasties have come and gone, and the kingdom of God continues to go forward. Friends, that ought to give us amazing confidence for where we live and the time that we live today. That the kingdom of God will not falter, it will not fail, and no matter who gets elected, and no matter what governor we have, and no matter any of that, the kingdom of God moves forward and we get to be a part of it. This was the, the message that Jesus came with. He was unwavering with this, and he said that the kingdom of God would be the most important, most influential, most impactful, most powerful, most significant endeavor, not just in Israel, not just 2,000 years ago, but for all humanity, for all time, including today. Jesus believed it, he taught it, and it is the truth. And he said, we get to be a part of that kingdom. This is the good news, that the kingdom of God has now, through Jesus, become available to ordinary human beings, people like you and me, and that we can, here and now, experience the presence and the power of God. 
that we get to live in this kingdom. We get to live in this presence and be a part of this. Jesus came sending, bringing this message to the crowds. Remember, he saw the crowds and he went up on the, on the hillside and he sat down and his disciples came to him and began teaching. You remember these crowds who they were? These weren't the powerful. They weren't the elite. They weren't the wealthy. They were the ordinary. They were the common. They were the ones who were untouchable, undesirable, outcasts unclean, undeserving. They were the has-beens, the never-beens, the never-would-bes. They were just the ordinary people. And he said to them, this is your lucky day. If you feel like you don't fit in, this is your lucky day. Blessed are the poor in spirit, not because you're poor in spirit, but in spite of all of that that Jesus welcomes us into the kingdom of God. And so last week we began barely touching on the Beatitudes, looking at one and kind of a half of a Beatitude a little bit with the merciful. Now, we don't get to spend any more time with that. We're gonna move on. At the end of that, he says, now here, here's a little dose of reality. You get to be a part of this kingdom and it's a blessed life. It's happy. It's your lucky day to be a part of this kingdom because of what Jesus has done for you. But people will insult you and people will persecute you, and people will even slander, say false things. They'll lie about you because of me, but rejoice and be glad, for great is your reward in heaven. And when he gets done with that, he follows it up with three verses that we're gonna focus on today. Three verses that are this truth bomb that he drops, and there's probably many different ways we could look at these three verses. There's a way that you can look at them and say, well, this is part of, Jesus' philosophical uh, ideology. It was an, an, an idealistic, uh, wishful thinking. That's one way that some people have looked at this. That, yeah, maybe someday in eternity this might be the case. Another way you can approach this, and even our time together today, is this is just biblical information. I'm learning more stuff of what Jesus said. But my prayer is this, that we won't just learn biblical information. We will see these three verses and apply them to our lives and see how it's transformational for us as we go into these verses. Now, I will say this, that these three verses that we're going to look at are probably some of the most familiar verses in the entire Sermon on the Mount. Some of you will be saying, oh, yeah, 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 I know this one. I've heard this one. Okay, I got this one. I, I, I want you to think about the crowds who heard this for the very first time. The crowds who heard this for the very first time would have been like saying, are you serious? I mean, this is so extreme what you're saying, Jesus. This is, this is far-fetched. This is, this is unbelievable. And they're not using that metaphorically. They're like, we don't think we believe this. But Jesus did believe it. And he does believe it. And it's not just for them then. It's for us now. Because when he invites us into his kingdom, as citizens of this kingdom, then Jesus reveals our identity and our purpose. He reveals who we are. He, he says, this is what you're about. As he, as he, as he says these, these words, we'll look at them in just a minute. He says, I want to tell you now how I see you. I want to tell you who you are. I want you to know your identity now that you're a part of this kingdom of God. And I want you to understand why I invited you into this kingdom. I want you to understand how, how it looks 
to live as a, a citizen of this kingdom, when and where you can live this out and, and what that all looks like. And he says, here's your identity and here's your purpose. This is like your destiny. This is what you were created for. You're a part of the kingdom. So the, the common folks come around and he says these words. He says, you are the salt of the earth. Now, some of you I know, right now you're going, uh, okay, yeah, I, I've heard this one, I, I know this one, okay, let's, let's uh, go watch a game or something. And you're free to do that, that's fine. You, you got to see the intro video, that's a great sermon in and of itself. He says, you're the salt of the earth. We've grown up with that terminology. Even if you're not in church, you've grown up with that terminology. And then he takes it one step further in verse 14 when he says, and you are the light of the world. And we're like, yeah, 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 salt of the earth, light of the world. I know, sang the song, heard the lessons, all of those things. His listeners were saying, well, you can't be serious. Like us? Like, we're nobodies. And you're saying we're the salt of the earth and the light of the world? Okay. So if you grew up in church or you've been in church arenas for any length of time, you have no doubt heard sermons on this. You've been in Sunday school lessons on this, Bible studies on this. You've studied it. You've had devotionals on it, all, all those things. And you might check out. I hope that you will not because I want us to spend some time on this and hopefully bring it to a place where we can apply it to our lives today. All right. So oh, if you're going to check out, hang around for this one because I'm going to take us on a rabbit trail right up front, okay? Because sometimes I get down to the end. I say, oh, I don't have time for this. And then I do it anyway. So I'm going to do it up front and then I won't have time for something else. But here's the deal. If you read the New Testament, you see that there's different groups of people. There's like groups that are always the enemy. You know, the Romans were like the enemy all the time. Um, the, uh, the, the Gentiles uh, were the enemy all the time. The Samaritans, especially the Samaritans, the tax collectors, the sinners, the lepers. These were all like, like the, the ooh, bad, bad people. What you also find throughout the New Testament, especially in the Gospels, is that there are different religious groups. And we talk about, you know, the priests. Last week we looked at, at, at the high priests or the, the scribes, the teachers of the law. Uh, the one that probably gets more airtime than anything else is the Pharisees. And, uh, and there's another group called the Sadducees. We won't go into all that. There's another religious group that you don't find in the Scriptures recorded in the Gospels, but it's a religious group that existed during that time. And I, and I want to tell you this because I find this interesting. It could have been, speculation, it could have been that Jesus has given kind of a, kind of a nod to these guys and contrasting with them. This other group is a group called the Essenes, Essenes. Now, you won't find that in the New Testament. Most of our knowledge about the Essenes comes from extra-biblical uh, writers. For instance, a guy named Philo of Alexandria. He was probably 20 years older than Jesus, but lived at the same time of Jesus. He was a philosopher that lived in Alexandria, Egypt. And he writes about this group, of, this religious group of men called the Essenes. The one who writes probably most about it is Josephus. Maybe you've heard of Josephus. Titus Flavius Josephus, he, is a, a, uh, he was born about the time Jesus went back to be with the Father. He was a Roman um, Jewish historian, and he writes about the Essenes as well. The best way to put it in, in a nutshell is, is that the Essenes were kind of like um, monks in a monastery. They were a, a group of men who were very, very devout, 
who had committed themselves to communal living and poverty, so they didn't own anything. They lived in it like a community, like a monastery. They shared everything. They all had everything in common. And as I said, they were very, very devout. They were very committed to the Torah and to living out the Torah and to, uh, to keeping the Torah. And so they would, um, they would go through ritual baths multiple times a day, time in the Word, uh, transcribing the Torah, these kind of things. And they were a, a, a separatist group, uh, as I said, like in a monastery, they were, they were um, isolated from others. Many people believe that John the Baptist may have been a part of the Essenes. I mean, it, it goes to reason. He comes out, you know, he's got this ascetic lifestyle. He's a, a little bit different. His parents were extremely old. They probably died when he was young. Maybe he was taken in by the Essenes, very devout, very godly, all of these things. Could have been. What we know is that there was a group of them that lived south of Jerusalem in an area called Qumran. And, and the, there, there are ruins uh, of this, this community in Qumran. And in Qumran, one of the things, and it's, it's generally agreed upon, that it was these Essenes of the Qumran who held the scriptures and they, in fact, not only copied them, but they preserved them. And maybe you've heard of something called the Dead Sea Scrolls. See, in 1947, I've got a picture. In 1947, uh, this is a cave where one, one, uh, one of the caves where some of the Dead Sea Scrolls were found. And just up from here is the ruins of this Qumran community of Essenes. In 1947, a little Bedouin boy trying to get some of his sheep and goats out of caves throws a rock into a cave and he hears pottery break. Upon further inspection, he finds out that there are these jars inside of them are the Dead Sea Scrolls. And it's believed that it was the Essenes who had preserved these scrolls, the Dead Sea Scrolls, um, because they were afraid that with the Roman Empire and with what was going to happen, that, that the Word of God would be taken away from the face of the planet. So they held on to this. Kind of a, almost like a, a, a Knights Templar, if you're familiar with all that. Now, why are they called the Dead Sea Scrolls? Because this area, Qumran, is down by, of all things, the Dead Sea. Why is it called the Dead Sea? Many of you are aware of this. Because very little life survives in the Dead Sea. Maybe some brine shrimp. But the reason it is dead is because of the contents of the, of the water, the salinity uh, content. Uh, it's also in the scriptures, it's referred to as the salt sea. So this has been the case for thousands and thousands of years. The Dead Sea has a salinity content of about 33%. Let me give you a, a, a point of comparison. You've been to the ocean. Oceans generally have a salt content of approximately, and it varies depending on where you are, but approximately 3.5%. What that means is that the Dead Sea or the Salt Sea is nine times more salty than our oceans, which makes it a great source for salt, where you could just take water, it would evaporate, and bam, you've got all the salt. A third of what you pull out of the Dead Sea is now salt, so it was like the source of great salt. So these Essenes that lived down by the Salt Sea also referred to themselves as the sons of light. Now, some of you know where I'm going with all of this. So here are these people, these men that, that are devout, they're godly, they, they're seeking God, they, they're spending time every day in his word, they're trying to follow the Torah as best they can, but they're, they're isolated, they're separatists. And it could be, speculation, it could be that Jesus has kind of given this little glance like, 
we admire them, we respect them, we honor them, we can't imagine being like them, but their kingdom impact is greatly limited because they're isolated by themselves. And then Jesus looks at these common people who could never be like that, people who are poor in spirit, and he says to them, but you, on the other hand, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. These guys that live down by the salt sea who call themselves the sons of light, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. So let's look at this, the, the salt, salt of the earth. Now, again, that has made its way into our popular vernacular. People say, oh, he's a real salt of the earth kind of guy, or they're real salt of the earth folks. And usually, maybe not everybody, but usually what they mean is, man, this is like an honest, hardworking, humble, probably financially conservative. You can count on them. They're faithful. You think of that picture, American Gothic, you know, farmers in Iowa. I don't know. I've never been to Iowa, but it's just like salt of the earth. That's not what Jesus is talking about. And, and while that's all commendable, and, and, and good, I, I would encourage you to, to be trustworthy and honest and humble and financially conservative, all of those things. I, I, I really would. As far as being a farmer in Iowa, I, that's up to you. But that's not what Jesus is talking about. He says, you are the salt of the earth. Now here is where usually in a sermon like this, the teacher, the, the preacher, whoever's the Bible study leader will go in and talk about all the different qualities and values of salt. And, 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 and we could do that too. I and mean, we, could, we could talk about how, how salt has healing powers and, and, and cleansing, purifying powers and, and how salt w was like the refrigeration units of that day because they didn't have refrigeration. It was a preservative or the value of salt. I, I mean, Roman soldiers used to get paid in salt when you say they're worth their weight in salt. Our, our word salary comes from this whole idea of being paid in salt. You could talk about salt as being a, a taste enhancer, a thirst inducer, a slug dissolver. I mean, and you could talk about all those things. And then you could kind of take it too far and talk about, well, if you have too much salt, then I'm, I'm retaining water, can't get my rings off, I'm all bloated, or my heart attack. Listen, we can go into all that the problem is you can dissect the analogy down so far that you take all the life out of it and miss the very point that Jesus was trying to make in the first place. So when he says to these people, you're so blessed because you're part of the kingdom, now you're the salt of the earth, what he really wants to help them understand is that there's a distinction that makes a difference. There's a distinction. Now that you're part of the kingdom, there's a distinction in your life and it makes a difference in your life. And because of that, you become distinctive and you make a difference in this world. Remember the whole idea of being uprooted that I talked about. My friend JJ talks about being uprooted. This is the way that we think is the world. But no, now that we're part of the kingdom of heaven, we're uprooted into his truth. Different way of thinking, different priorities, different values, different way of responding, different way of acting, different way of living. It's, we're, we're, we're changed. There's a distinctive, a distinction that is different, that we are changed, we are not like we once were. And the whole picture is that it doesn't just happen to us, and this is what would set us apart from the Essenes, is that we're not just going off trying to have this transformation in here. It's the kingdom of God breaking into us so that the kingdom of God would break out into the world through us that there would be this distinction with us that our lives would make a difference. That if 
those who are part of the kingdom of, of God, those who are part of this kingdom who are, who are now the salt of the earth, if they were to somehow be removed from this world, that it would not be a good thing because they bring about beauty, they bring about healing, they bring about per, you know, per, uh, per, preserving it, they, they, they bring about value, they, they bring about a thirst and enhancement that it's a good thing to be the salt of the earth. Now, with that, I wanna make sure we're clear on one thing. He says, you're the salt of the earth, not a salt. Because sometimes we think, oh, <laughs> we're to assault the earth. And that's how sometimes Christians approach it. You know, they come out smashing people with the scripture, and did you know what it says in Leviticus? And there's judgment, and there's condemnation, and they're just blasting people and, and going on and on. That's not what he's talking about. Not assaulting the earth. It's the salt of the earth, that the earth would be a better place because of it. You know, maybe, um, maybe you've seen, like on the back of a car or a truck or on a, on a T-shirt maybe, you've seen a logo that looks like this, Salt Life, Salt Life. Um, it, it's a very common thing. It's a big brand. Uh, a little backstory on this. In 2003, there were four buddies that lived down in uh, Jacksonville Beach, Florida. They loved to go fishing out in the ocean, saltwater fishing. And their little code was, it's time for a little salt life that we go out and go fishing. And that kind of became their, their little catchphrase, these four guys. And one of them actually had it tattooed on his neck. And he had so many people ask him about it. And as he explained it, they thought, oh, that's kind of cool, that he made some stickers. And then they eventually made some T-shirts. And now it has become a multi-million dollar brand that really basically says is that the ocean is our DNA. And now it covers whether it's fishing or surfing or scuba diving or watching sunsets with, or, or, or you know, body surfing or swimming or, or paddling, whatever it is. It's just kind of this whole idea. Jesus, 2,000 years ago, comes along to his followers, to his disciples, and he says, you're the OG of salt life. Like, long before there was ever this, this T-shirt, it's about you. You are the salt of the earth, and you're going to make a difference that changes everything, because, and we'll look at this uh, if we have time a little bit later on, because he says, because if you're not salty, if the salt has lost its saltiness, then what, what's the point? If there's no difference, if we're not changing our world, then why would we do this? You are the salt of the earth. And then he would also say, and you are the light of the world. Notice he doesn't say, you're the light of Capernaum, you're the light of Galilee, you're the light of Israel, you're the light of the world. Now remember, he's up on a mountainside on the northwest side of, of, of the Sea of Galilee, and about 10 miles away on the, on the southeast side of the Sea of Galilee, up on a hill, there's a mesa, there's a, a, a plateau and it's about a 35-acre little flat spot. And there, which is today a part of the Golan Heights, there was a city that was part of the Decapolis, the, the 10 Roman cities. And, and this city, which in, in Greek was called Hippos or Hippos, uh, which meant horse, uh, it could also be in, um, in Aramaic, it was uh, Susita, I think is how you say it, Susita. And, and it meant horse, because it looked like a horse's head. But as Jesus is teaching, I can imagine this city that's over there, 10 miles away or so, very clear day, made of limestone, shimmering in the, in the sun. He says, see, a, a city on a hill 
cannot be hidden. And as it becomes dusk and dark, the torches and the fires and all the lights can still be seen. But there's this city. It says, you, you can't hide that. And then he goes a step further and he says, he says, or like, and, and this is a little oil lamp that I got in Israel. They'd pour oil, olive oil from probably the third pressing, come up on this wick, and they would light it. Very, very common. He said, like, who would ever light a lamp and put a bowl over it? Now, this has become a very popular children's song that most of us were raised singing. This little light of mine, hide it under a bushel, scream it out. No. Okay, all right. He said, who would, who would light a, a, a lamp like that and, and put it under a bowl? No, 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 no. You, you put it where it will shine its light and, and everyone in the house will benefit from it. And what I love about what Jesus does here as he says to them, don't you understand your identity and your purpose is to be the light of the world and whether you have impact like a city on a hill or a lamp in the house, you are still the light of the world. You may feel insignificant, but with what God is doing in you and the kingdom of God within you, you are now bringing light to illuminate, to guide, to, to show the rest of the world this kingdom. Now, for me, I hear that and think, well, okay, I get the idea about Jesus, you know, that Jesus for sure. In fact, in John chapter one, um, where, where it's talking about in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. Talking about Jesus being the word. It says in John chapter one, uh, verse nine, the true light that gives light to every man was coming into the world. It's talking about Jesus, this is the true light, and he's going to give light. He's going to illuminate things. He's going to bring about the, the truth. We're going to be able to see it. He's going to guide us. We, we get that. In fact, later in that same passage, it says, um, and in him was life, and that life was the light of men. So I get that. And I get when Jesus says this in John chapter 8, later on, when Jesus spoke again to the people. He said, I am the light of the world. Absolutely, Jesus. Yes, you are the king. You are the light. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. I get that, Jesus. You are the light of the world. You are the source of light. You are the truth. You are the way. All of that. I get that. And Jesus says, yes. But now I'm telling you, you are the light of the world. Now, don't get all full of yourself. Get full of me. Because I am the light that fills you. And because of my light in your life then you will be the light of the world. Years later, a guy named Saul, who's trying to kill all of Christ's followers, is on his way to Damascus, and he's struck by, of all things, a brilliant light. And he's hit by this light. And it changes him. I mean, he becomes the greatest evangelist and proponent of, of the things of Christ that ever lived. And he goes around and he preaches this message of the kingdom of God wherever he goes. And he goes to these, these Gentile 
towns that don't even have Jewish people and that are pagan idol worshipers and all this. And he preaches about the kingdom of God and people begin to hear the good news and they begin to follow him. One of the towns that he went to, and we studied uh, the letter that he wrote to this uh, town just over a year ago, summer of 2019. He goes to Ephesus. Ephesus was a town, a pagan town of immense idolatry, unbelievable immorality and debauchery. And he preaches the kingdom of God, the good news of who they can be in Christ, and there becomes followers. And there's this gathering that happens uh, there in Ephesians, in, in, in Ephesus. And so he writes him a letter, and look at what he says in Ephesians chapter 5. He says, For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Notice what he doesn't say. This is, this is seemingly small, but it's profound. He doesn't say, you were once in darkness, but now you are in light in the Lord. He says, no, you were darkness. You're like darkness personified. You were dead and you came back to life. You were dark and now you are light. This is what you were. This is who you are now in Christ. And because you were dark and now you are light, he says, so then live as children of light. Jesus would say, you are the light of the earth. Live as children of light. So, so we come back to this this. Very, very common words. You are the salt of the earth and the light of the world. And many of you could preach this just as well as I have because you know it full well. I want to, in the remainder of our time, look at three observations about these two things, salt and light. What Jesus says, this is your identity. This is your purpose. Three observations about both of these things and see if we can kind of apply that to our life. One of the things about salt and life, light is that um, they both are common and ordinary. Like, these are found in every household. Salt was in every house. Salt is in every house. Salt is everywhere. Salt actually used to be on restaurant tables. Uh, salt, you can find it anywhere. It's, it's or- he doesn't say, he doesn't say, you're the titanium of the earth, or you're the uranium. You're the rare earth minerals of the earth. Now he says, hey, salt, Go down to the Dead Sea. I mean, it's everywhere. It's common. You have it in your homes. It's common and it's ordinary. And light, whether it's up on a hill or in a little lamp in your house, the light is everywhere. But what he says is, while you may feel common and ordinary, and in and of yourself you are, as a part of the kingdom of God with Jesus living within you, you may be common and ordinary, but your life can be uncommon and it can be extraordinary. I don't have this on the screen. Let me just read this for you out of 2 Corinthians chapter 4. It says, For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. And then he says these famous words, But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. Look at how he puts these things together. Something so ordinary, so common as light and salt, a lamp, a shaker, to have such an uncommon and extraordinary impact on the earth and the world. Here's another one. Both salt and light, they they are both they, they both give and expend. Like, 
until, until it goes out, it does no good. He doesn't say, you are a salt vault. Hold on to it. Again, this is why it's maybe different than the Essenes. They, they, they had a lot of salt, but they, they held on to it. They were isolated. It says, you are not a salt vault. You don't do any good until you begin to give and extend and expend yourself on behalf of others in this world. Years ago, Rebecca Manley Pippert wrote a book, and the title is Out of the Salt Shaker Into the World. That so many times we as the church, we just kind of have our little salty gatherings, our salty small groups, salty church services, and those are all great, but we are called to be kingdom bringers, to be the salt of the earth. And to light, not to have light as a, a light in the repository, just hold on to the light and hide it. He says, no, that doesn't really do any good. That's like a lighting a lamp and putting it under a bowl. Who would do that? It doesn't benefit anybody. You can't store it up. It's not good until you begin to, to extend it and begin to, to give it away. And that light is that way, that we are to light this world. You know, one of the a big part of who we are as Cornwall Church, part of our strategy and a part of our DNA is the whole idea of go and be. It's not just come here, it's to go and be. Go and love and be the light. Go and make a difference in this world. And there are things that we do as a church, in Bellingham and Skagit, together, to just go and, and to make a difference in our world and to make a difference in our community. But it's not just what we do collectively. Jesus looks at us like, no matter where you're watching, whether you're in the building in Skagit or in Bellingham or you're on your phone or a tablet or, a, or a, a computer or a television in your living room or in your car, it doesn't matter. He looks at you and he says, no, 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 you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. So go and be. And the third observation about this is that they can both impact and influence. And that was Jesus' whole point. That was the whole point, is that you are now part of this kingdom. The kingdom of God is breaking into you. You don't deserve it, but it's because of the good news of Jesus that now it breaks into this world and makes a difference in our world. You remember what we talked about two weeks ago, that whole uh, deal with John Ortberg. Up there, down here, that we take this kingdom of heaven, this kingdom of God, and we have it come to bear on our life here in this earth, in this dark world, that we would bring the light in this world that, that is, is morally decaying, that we would bring the purifying and the preserving truth of the salt of the earth, that Jesus would pray, Father, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth just as it is in heaven. That we, you and I, little lamps, little salt shakers, we can impact and we can influence big and small ways, or not. Because Jesus said, this is who you are, this is your identity, this is your purpose, but salt can lose its saltiness. And maybe you're no different than anyone else on the face of the planet. In Luke, uh, I think it's Luke 14, Luke records a similar passage. And in that one, he says, listen, if the salt is no longer salty, it's not even good enough to be thrown on the manure pile. Now, that's a whole other sermon on itself. But Jesus has said, you are created to influence and impact the world, but you can lose your saltiness. 
And you can hide the influence and the impact that I've given to you. You can put it under a bowl, but that's not what I want you to do. So Jesus, 2,000 years later, looks at us and he says, hey, Cornwall Church, hey, teenager, hey, father, hey, hey woman, hey, lady, hey, man, hey, follower of Jesus, you're the salt of the earth. You're the light of the world. And right where you are is where I want you to impact and influence. And you might say, well, pfft, it's just, I don't know, I'm just, my house or my job or this, this season, I just, I'm not, you know, this is all just a mistake. I, I beg to differ with you. It might be something where it's temporary. It might not be something for the rest of your life. But where you are right now, I believe that God can use you there and is probably di divinely orchestrated for you to be there. In Acts chapter 17, it says this, from one man he made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth and he determined the time set for them and the exact places where they should live. You say, well, I, I can't shine my light here. It's so dark and the people, exactly the point, Jesus said, that's why you're there. I can't make a difference here because it said, no, 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 that's why you're there. And what would it look like if we began to say, these are not just words from a children's song that we sang. These are not just words that we've heard throughout our life. These are not words that we just roll off our tongue. This is who we are. This is how we live. And Jesus would say, don't get all full of yourself because it's not about you. In the last verse of that little passage, verse 16, Jesus says this, in the same way, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. It's all about God. It's living in such a way that, that you as a citizen of the kingdom of God are bringing about salt and light in this world that gives glory to God. What if, what if even just this week, now, and, and, and especially in this season that we're in, but what if this, just this week, we approached every day saying, as we started the day, just saying, God, thank you for letting me be a part of your kingdom. Today, wherever I go, whoever I encounter, I want to live a life that is the salt life, and I want to be a light, and I want to in some way glorify you. What if we lived that way? Tell me that wouldn't make a difference. And Jesus says, that's what it means to be a part of the kingdom of God, to be the salt and to the light.